Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Tariff crisis averted. Mexico and the United States agree a deal on immigration. Details, though, are pretty scarce. Defense is the best offense. Sometimes, at least, United Technologies is tying up with Raytheon. And may the force be with you. Salesforce acquiring data analytics firm Tableau in a $15 billion deal. I make that an M&A Monday. Let's make a move. first move once again. I hope you all had a great weekend. Not a moment to lose. It's a tariff turnaround story today. As I mentioned, the United States and Mexico are reaching a deal over immigration. Didn't see tariffs hit today, and that's forcing futures higher this morning. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing. It's a global market story, though, basically green across the board. I have to say, though, investors were increasingly confident, I think, that a deal would be reached and a solution would be found. We did see gains of more than 1% for the U.S. majors on Friday. In fact, the S&P 500 gained over 4% for its best week since November of last year. The Nasdaq added more than 4.5%. In fact, we're just 100 points now above where we were for the S&P 500 prior to President Trump's tweets threatening Mexican tariffs. So we've kind of gone nowhere fast. Why? Well, I think we have to thank Jay Powell, of course, and hopes for a rate cut from the Federal Reserve. For now, we're seeing a relief rally in the Mexican peso to up some 2% versus the US dollar in the session. I do have to wonder, though, what the full politicization of tariffs and their use for tackling something like immigration here will mean for the Chinese that deal hopes. There's still expectations that when President Xi and President Trump meet at the G20, those talks will bear some kind of fruition as far as further talks are concerned, at least on a trade deal. I just wonder whether President Xi might now look at it and worry that even if we see a deal reached, that tariffs could be used on China for things like South China Sea, not agreeing over North Korea, perhaps even Iran, and whether that will limit the deal or limit the follow-through. Just my thought, but we'll discuss later on in the show. Right now, one thing to watch, of course, on this front is weakness in the Chinese renminbi, currently sitting at its lowest level of the year versus the US dollar. Goldman Sachs over the weekend saying we could see it break through that psychologically important level of seven over the next three months, something that's not happened in a decade. And if we see that, watch the US administration. Clearly, no shortage of things to discuss, but Mexican trade, immigration, trade and immigration, of course, in this case, is where we kick off the drivers. And Mexico breathing a sigh of relief this morning, agreeing a deal with the United States. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we have a deal. We just don't know really what's in the deal. And there seems to be some confusion yeah. over whether agriculture is going to be purchased or not. Walk us through it. And it's so fascinating. It's almost as if it's a reality TV episode, right? And the president president has sort of rebranded those nine days of, of threats against Mexico into a conclusion, wrapped it up, and ended the season. But we're wondering, wait a minute, there's some missing pieces here. So look, the president says there's this big ag deal that's part of this, in addition to some of the border security measures that he says that the, the Mexican government has, has agreed to, including 6,000 troops on Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. And the president tweeting that Mexico has agreed to immediately begin buying large amounts of American uh, agricultural product from our great patriot farmers. 
Uh, but when you talk to people uh, around the Mexican delegation and people inside the Beltway, they say, wait a minute, we're not sure exactly what, what that is. It hasn't really happened yet. The president was just asked about it, actually, on CNBC, where he's been in a 20 mm. or 25 minute sort of meandering conversation uh, on the phone on, on, on live television, where he was asked about those ag purchases. He said, well, everybody who knows about this knows it's going to happen, but we can't say it's going to happen yet because the Mexican legislature has to decide if it's going to happen. So, you, you know, I mean, it's it's he's again branding this big uh, ag purchase, but we don't have any uh, re real details on that yet. I just think we're perhaps conflating two things as well, a deal over immigration and the USMCA, of course, the NAFTA Mark II, perhaps. Um, but as you yeah. quite rightly point out on this point, it's, it's pretty tough to tell. I mean, if I take the backdrop here in markets, we were already rallying um, at the back end of last week on hopes of a solution here. But the greater contributing factor here, I think, are hopes for a rate cut here. No matter what yeah. happens on the trade front, the hope is that Jay Powell is going to ride to the rescue. And, and the president weighing in on that, too, and saying the Fed should never have raised rates here yeah the, the fed very or the the president very critical our fed is uh very destructive to us is what he just said on television he said they never should have been raising rates and they never should have been doing uh you know the uh the the quantitative uh tightening that they had been doing i mean remember the u.s economy was just flush with stimulus at the after the financial crisis we have never had a balance sheet like that at the fed ever the president at the time criticized it for saying it was going to lead to bubbles down the road, but now he's saying, no, 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 don't take it away on my watch. <laughs> I, I, I want it. I want it here. I want. I want to remind people too that in, in in Wall Street, it's an upside down logic, right? I mean, bad news is good news. Last week on Wall Street, essentially, is what I saw there, and and you've got investors who stock market investors who are addicted to cheap money. Anybody who's been in the market for the past 10 years knows that the stock market is addicted to all this cheap money and all this liquidity. Um, they're saying, uh, look, we want the Fed to cut rates. But when the Fed cuts rates, it's for not a good reason. It's because the economy is faulting. There's a financial crisis. There, there's a, there are trade wars brewing around the world with uncertain outcomes for global growth. So, I mean, for all those people who are cheering that the Fed's going to come to the rescue and be the shock absorber for President Trump's shocks, it, you don't want to hope for a shock in the global economy. Well, you also want to have some firepower and some cushion in the yes. next crisis or the next downturn. And the risk is that you uh, you don't have that, too. Christine Romans, I can tell you one thing. If this is a reality TV show, the series isn't over yet. And you're hired, Julia so Chatterley. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You, too. <laughs> Let's move on to our next driver. One of the big, uh, biggest mergers of the year, United Technologies, or UTC, and Raytheon together worth some $166 billion set to create a U.S. US aerospace and defense powerhouse Matt Egan can also join our show and has all the details on this talk me through this because this is a huge deal and actually pretty transformative two companies coming together from very different sectors it is a huge deal and it really um, accelerates the makeover of what is one of America's last major industrial conglomerates. That's United Technologies. So last fall, UTC, they announced a deal to spin off their Otis Elevator division as well as the uh, carrier building system unit. And now they are joining forces with Raytheon to create really what would be an aviation and defense behemoths, second only to Boeing in those categories. 
Um, and, you know, there is some concern, though, all of a sudden about whether or not there will be some opposition to this deal uh, from Washington, because just in the fa in the last few minutes, um, as Christine mentioned, President Trump was giving an interview to CNBC and he expressed some concern about this deal. He was asked about it. He said, I'm a little concerned. He said it's hard to negotiate if you only have two companies. And he was talking about uh, some competitive issues due to all of the consolidation in the industry. So we'll have to see whether or not this deal is able to get through the regulatory scrutiny. You raised so many great points there. I mean, UTC is in the middle of a, a breakup right now. It's trying to absorb Rockwell Collins. Just the acrobatics involved in this deal are quite illustrative for me of uh, perhaps some of the challenges going forward. But to your point about President Trump, I mean, if we look at this deal in isolation, these are two companies that actually have very little crossover here. So even if you are going to make a national champion, the idea that this would mean sort of greater consolidation in the industry perhaps is a, a moot point here. Right. So, so you raised some great points there. Um, there is some execution risk here, not just because of the uh, the regu regulatory scrutiny, but it's also because there's a lot of moving pieces here. United Technologies just recently acquired Rockwell Collins, the, uh, the aerospace parts maker. And so it's already you know, consolidating with that deal. It needs to complete the spinoff of the elevator and the building system units before this deal can go forward. Um, and then as far as, you know, a concern about overlap goes, you know, President Trump did express uh, some worry about overlap, but really analysts say that there isn't all that much overlap. Yeah. So there may not be a real competitive um, and anti-competition issue here. Yeah. So I think as far as the president's concerned, as long as there's more defense spending, that's uh, perhaps OK. Matt Egan, thank you so much for uh, giving us the details on that. And now on to another multi-billion dollar deal. Salesforce this time buying data analytics firm Tableau for $15 billion. Paula Monica is live for us on this one. Paul, what's Salesforce going to do with the Tableau here? Yeah, this is a very fascinating deal, Julia, because you know, what you have with Salesforce buying Tableau, data visualization, it's yet another example of how having as much big data as possible is what customers that are buying all of these software platforms really want. And it comes on the heels of Google just announcing a deal for another big data firm last week, Looker. And that is actually a, a deal that sent Tableau's shares down because people were wondering, oh, all of a sudden now Google is going to be a much bigger player in this business. So you have Salesforce scooping in buying Tableau, pretty big premium as well. This is something that obviously many big cloud software companies, Microsoft as well as Amazon with its web services unit, they all are finding value in having as much data and data intelligence as possible. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not Microsoft, which already has Azure, might want to do a similar deal. Could Oracle, Strike, SAP, all the big software companies, this is the holy grail. Yeah, and I'm just looking at uh, Tableau pre-market as well, and it's absolutely soaring on this uh, this price as well. The the amount that Salesforce are paying here is quite in, interesting in terms of the, the broader sector here. How soon is this going to add value to Salesforce? When are we expecting this deal to close? Yeah, it's going to be uh, you know a couple of months before the deal closes, but I think it is something that investors are hoping will be uh, pretty uh, you know solid for uh, the company uh, you know in uh, you know coming months. It isn't all stock deal. So there could be some dilution as a result of that. And I think that is why Salesforce stock is down about 5% in early trading. But I think Salesforce and Mark Benioff, he is 
a very high-profile visionary in this industry realizes that you have to get bigger in order to compete with other rivals like Oracle and Microsoft. And don't forget IBM in the cloud as well. They just did the Red Hat deal also. also. So that's something that a lot of big software and tech companies are really looking at this business a lot more closely. Yeah, beefing up the competition there. Uh, Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In Hong Kong, hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets Sunday to protest a law that would allow people arrested in the city to be extradited to China. Protest organizers are calling for more demonstrations on Wednesday. Despite the tensions, Hong Kong's chief executive is vowing to push ahead with the bill. There are severe deficiencies and gaps in our existing system to deal with cross-border crimes and transnational crimes. So we have to sort of pluck that loophole and rectify that deficiency for the long-term benefit of Hong Kong because nobody wants Hong Kong to be a fugitive offender's haven. Rivers joins us now. Matt, those are the words of Hong Kong's chief executive justifying this bill and the actions required here. Hundreds of thousands of people begged to differ, though, and they came out onto the streets to display their discontent here. Talk us through what we saw. Yeah, I mean, it was an absolutely massive uh, protest that I think might have even surprised the organizers themselves in terms of how many people came out to really voice their discontent with this bill. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about what the bill would mean and what critics are saying about it. Basically, what would happen here is that if this bill would pass in its current form, and that's still being debated, uh, then what would happen is China would have the ability to request extradition of anyone here in Hong Kong, so including you know not just Hong Kongers, but also foreign citizens. And what critics say is that because of Beijing's notoriously opaque legal system, because of Beijing's uh, oftentimes not guaranteeing a, a fair trial to people, what critics are saying is that Beijing could request the extradition of people here in Kong, Hong Kong simply for political reasons. Request the extradition of people like uh, dissidents, human rights campaigners, journalists, activists, people that Beijing doesn't like for political reasons. Uh, and, and so what critics are saying is that it's a human rights issue and that it really erodes this one country, two systems concept that really kind of has, has guided the way Beijing and Hong Kong exist essentially separately of one another with semi-autonomy here in Hong Kong. If you're looking at that protest, you're seeing kind of a wide swath of society here. You've got some older people, younger people, the students that you might expect to be there, but you've also got business people, you know, people who are concerned that outside foreign direct investment might not come here to Hong Kong as much if those companies, those, those foreigners, can't guarantee the safety of the companies, the business executives or the business people that would come here to do that work. So that's what you're seeing here, a pretty widespread uh, movement. One in seven Hong Kongers of this entire city were out on the streets, if you believe the organizers' numbers, Julia. Wow, a million people. I mean, to your point, and this is exactly where I was going, if we do see this bill passed, it has to change the relationship that Hong Kong has with the likes of Washington, with London, with Brussels, and for financial firms looking at this. This is the conduit for financial flows in and out of China. It's got to hurt Hong Kong, and it's got to hurt China too. I think without question, I mean, you would you would have a, 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 a situation here where if you are a company 
from another country and you are looking to put a lot of resources into Hong Kong. One of the reasons you've done that in the past is because, like you said, it's a conduit to mainland to the mainland. But this operates independently of Beijing. And so there's a relative level of safety uh, uh, when when living here as opposed to, let's say, living in Shanghai. If you take that away and you give Beijing the opportunity through this law to say maybe go after business executives for inadvertent business offenses, let's say, which is another critique uh, that that that, you know, the, the protesters have of this. Well, what does that do to the confidence in the company to move resources here? You know, and I think that's ultimately what you're looking at. It's, it's not just a human rights issue when you talk to the protesters, though that's their number one issue. It's also what kind of business community are we creating? Creating or is being created in Hong Kong, and what are the ramifications of this law moving forward? The Hong Kong government says there wouldn't be a ramification, it wouldn't be a negative thing, but I think you've got a whole bunch of people here in Hong Kong right now, Julia, who disagree with that. Yeah, try persuading your workers to move under those conditions. Ouch. Matt Rivers, yeah. thank you so much for that. Yeah, real challenge. All right, let's move on. And the race to replace a British Prime Minister, Theresa May, has officially kicked off. You're looking at some of the MPs vying now for her job. Candidates have fewer than three hours before the window for nominations closes. They'll need support from at least eight fellow lawmakers to put themselves in the running. Former Boston Red Sox legend David Ortiz is recovering after he was shot on Sunday night in the Dominican Republic. Police tell CNN the baseball star is in a stable condition following surgery and they're waiting now to talk to him. Investigators say he was shot in the back by a motorcyclist who headed directly towards him. Several people are being detained, including the alleged gunman who was attacked by bystanders after the shooting. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but still ahead, bad for business. American CEOs join Hollywood in the fight against the abortion bills in several U.S. states and a debt of gratitude why companies should help their staff pay off student loans. That's all coming up. Stay with First Move. You're watching CNN. to first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange this Monday, the first trading session of the week, and it does look like we're going to see a positive open this morning, adding to the 4% plus gains that we saw across the markets in the United States last week, the stock markets at least at this stage, optimism that the tariff crisis over in Mexico has been inverted in light of a broader deal agreement between the United States and Mexico to tackle immigration, those we've mentioned already on the show, details at this stage are scarce. Yes. Let's talk through uh, what we think of this. Greg Valliere is a chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments, and he joins us now from Washington. Greg, always a pleasure to have you on First Move. What do you make of both the use of tariffs to uh, push the Mexicans into an agreement here on immigration and the deal that the president says has now been reached? Well, it's a pretty blunt weapon, but it worked. A win is a win, I guess. You might argue that uh, he's getting credit for solving a problem that he created, but the fact is that we were not we we're not going to have an ugly tariff war with Mexico. And I think chances of getting a deal with the Mexico-Canadian agreement and maybe even seeing a resumption of China talks, those chances may have improved a bit. You know, it's interesting, and you mentioned the point that actually it did get them to the table here to negotiate. And the president said on CNBC earlier today, look, they respect us now. And do you really believe that they would have put 6,000 troops on the border if I hadn't have threatened to play really tough here? Would you agree with that? I think his tactics are, are very blunt, but 
maybe they worked. Maybe they did yeah. force the Mexicans to act uh, hastily because they did not want to get into a big tariff war. I would say this also. I think the president was eager to get a victory and declare a victory because he was facing a rebellion on Capitol Hill from Republicans. And he was also facing a very uh, discombobulated stock market that worried about slowing growth. So I think there were a lot of reasons why he agreed to a deal. But again, you have to say a, a, a win is a win for him. You know, it's interesting, as you said, I think you used the word discombobulated there. Um, there's real nervousness for investors at this moment, not only on the threat of tariffs not reaching a deal with China, but that tariffs can be used for anything. Now things like immigration, so they've been fully yeah. politicized and that threat remains. What we did see, though, was a rally last week on the belief that Jay Powell's going to ride to the rescue here and, and cut rates. Is that the saving grace here, ultimately? Because the president reiterated that again today. Well, how is this for an irony, Julia? Here's the president who got the market so disconcerted about tariff wars because of his policies that the Fed had to step in or probably will step in to add a, a rate cut or two in the second half of the year just to make sure we don't slide into a recession. So the great irony is that Trump's policies wound up getting him the one thing he really, really wants, and that's Fed rate cuts. Do you think we end up seeing a China deal or do you think that the Chinese will look at what's happened here and go, you know what, even if we sign a deal, if the United States disagrees with our policies on the South China Sea or on North Korea or on Iran, perhaps, and energy purchases there, we could see tariffs being slapped once again on our nation. Do you think China looks at the situation like this and it makes them more or less likely to do a deal? I worry about this. Yes, so do I. And I think China's a much tougher call. I thought Mexico would capitulate as they did. China, however, you know, you look at their rhetoric the last three or four weeks toward the U.S., it's been really shockingly harsh. And I think there are a lot of bruised feelings uh, in Beijing. But uh, that said, I think they need a deal. Their economy seems to be weakening. And, and I do think at the end of the day, we'll get one. The key, obviously, is late June when Trump and Xi will meet. My hunch is they'll have a pretty constructive meeting. They'll agree to resume talks. But we're still months away before getting resolution on all of the issues that divide the two countries. To your point before, though, riding to the rescue here, Jay Powell with potential yeah. rate cuts, whether they've been pushed by the president and his right. uh, trade wars. Is that the saving grace, do you think, for investors here? And do you think we can still see fresh highs of these markets without a resolution on China? Well, it sure looks like we're going to get a rate cut, I would guess, at the end of July, not one at the end of June, because I think the mm -hmm. Fed wants to watch what happens in Japan at the G20 summit. So if we get a rate cut at the end of July and maybe another one late in the second half, that's pretty bullish. I think that gives the economy a, a booster shot. We already have extraordinarily stimulative fiscal policy, and now to see stimulative monetary policy, I think people may conclude that while a recession hasn't been outlawed, it's not imminent. Greg, I want to get your views on the 180 plus companies that are sending a letter to the administration today saying abortion and what we're seeing in certain states in the United States is, is bad for business. Is this going to become a problem for President Trump and the Republicans? I mean, 52% of white women yeah. voted for Trump. Is this going to be a problem? I think it's a problem for both parties, as Joe Biden found out last week, that right. the, Demo the Democrats will be pretty unanimous 
on this subject. But it, I had thought, perhaps incorrectly, that abortion would not be a big issue in 2020. But thanks to Alabama and a few other states, this could be a big issue. And it's one that puts Trump in a fairly awkward position in his own party. Yeah, I, uh, I have a feeling on this one. It's going to continue to escalate. We'll be talking about yeah. that more after the Open this morning. Greg, always a pleasure to have you, you on bet. the show. Greg Vallier joining us there from Washington. Right, plenty more to come here on Post Move. But for now, the Market Open is next. We're back in two. move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell. Lots of happy, smiling faces as that was rung this morning and the investors smiling as well today because we are seeing a higher open as anticipated for stock markets here in the United States. We avoided a tariff crisis with the United States and Mexico reaching a deal over immigration, as we've mentioned throughout the show. A little light on details at this stage, but for now at least not seeing those tariffs applied to Mexico today of some 5% allowing investors to continue to show optimism for these markets, adding to the 4% plus gains, of course, that we saw last week as well, fueled as we've discussed, by hopes for a Federal Reserve rate cut following that weaker payrolls number, of course, on Friday. All right, let me give you a look at some of the global movers, the individual stocks that we're focusing on in the session today. And as we've mentioned already, United Technologies and Raytheon joining up. Both are moving higher in the session right now. The announcing in a merger would be the biggest ever defense deal. So an aerospace giant tying up with a defense giant here in the United States. Also, uh, the industrial conglomerate and Raytheon competitor Honeywell trading higher and speculation that the deal may spark more consolidation in the sector too. So an interesting reaction from the broader sector. Also, eyes on Salesforce. Salesforce announcing its biggest acquisition ever, a $15 billion deal for data analytics company Tableau Software. As you would anticipate, the acquirer under a bit of pressure in the session, but uh, Tableau soaring in the session on that valuation. All right, let's move on and uh, talk about what I was mentioning actually before the market opened. Some top execs from almost 200 firms sending U.S. lawmakers a stark message that restricting abortion is, quote, bad for business. They've placed a full-page ad in Monday's New York Times, and Claire Sebastian joins me on this story. I'm just looking through the letter and the details in the New York Times. It said that these abortion laws that some states are looking at right now are against our values and impede corporate efforts to build a diverse workforce. It's a pretty stark message. Yeah, it's a pretty stark message, Julia. This is the, the full-page ad in the New York Times. They've definitely got their names out there. It's page five. Uh, it's about as visible as you can get. It's two things, really. They're saying uh, it's bad for business, so as you said, impedes their efforts to, uh, to hire people. They're framing it as an issue of workplace equality and economic prosperity. Uh, and it's also against their corporate values. That's why they've decided uh, to speak out. But it really is a bit of a sea change. We have seen uh, a rise in CEO activism over the past few years, everything from gun rights to race to sexual harassment. But abortion traditionally is something that they, they've really avoided touching. That uh, has changed recently as a raft of restricted abortion uh, laws have, sw have swept through Republican states. We've seen the likes of Disney, Warner Media, CNN's parent company, Netflix, 
threatened to boycott Georgia, where uh, a restrictive abortion law uh, has been signed by the governor. Uh, so really, we're seeing a bit of a shift here. But there are missing from this list, uh, Julia, some of the big uh, multinationals, the most valuable companies in the U.S., the likes of Amazon and, and Microsoft and Apple. But but some some big names, uh, Jack Dorsey, uh, CEO of Square, on behalf of that company, uh, has signed it. The likes of Yelp, Slack, uh, H&M, uh, Bloomberg as well. So so a pretty diverse coalition. Interesting, some of the names that you mentioned, though. Some of the biggest names in the spotlight right now, broader antitrust concerns, perhaps, and yet they're staying quiet on, as you point out, is a very contentious issue and something that actually people have generally stayed away from, even when they'd wade into the gun debate, for example, immigration, yet on this subject, remaining quiet, at least for now. Yeah, I think it's a measure of the risk uh, that goes. I mean, it's a calculation for the businesses. Some may feel that their customers will will appreciate this, and some may, may see that there's too much risk. If you look at the Twitter responses just this morning, the ads only been out for a few hours. There is already some backlash. But I think the question for these companies going forward is, will people, will customers, will future employees potentially interpret silence uh, as a tacit endorsement of things like this? Is there more of a risk uh, of say, staying silent? And are we entering into a world, Julia, where we're not just going to see red and blue states, but perhaps red red and blue companies. Is it becoming that political out there? Yeah, it's such a great point. And actually, George is the one to watch, as you mentioned, with the likes of Netflix, Disney and, and Warner Media, who do a lot of production there. Whether the uh, financial interest here outweighs the potential politics, that's going to be a really interesting one to watch. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. And especially as we go into 2020, uh, recent polling has suggested that uh, a large number of, uh, of people you know, are, gonna, are only going to vote for candidates that share their views on abortion. This is becoming uh, increasingly divisive. And, and many of these laws uh, that are being passed by the states are, are designed to, to try to push a legal challenge at the Supreme Court that could uh, potentially start to, to chip away at Roe v. Wade, that 46-year-old Supreme Court decision that enshrined a woman's right to choose uh, in the Constitution. So I think uh, this is, this is only going to grow and these companies are going to increasingly start to speak out. Yeah, looking increasingly vulnerable right now. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, U.S. President Donald Trump boasting that he's forced Mexico to take action on immigration, but also leaving the threat of tariffs on the table should the country fail to deliver on its promises. We speak to a former Mexican NAFTA negotiator to get his take next. Welcome back to First Move, where trade threats remain front and center. U.S. President Donald Trump is again warning he'll consider imposing tariffs on imports from Mexico if the new deal to tackle immigration with the country doesn't succeed. The Mexican peso has strengthened versus the U.S. dollar today, though recapturing recent lost ground as a result of the deal announcement. President Trump spoke to CNBC a short time ago. Here's what he had to say on the deal. If we didn't have tariffs, we wouldn't have made a deal with Mexico. We got everything we wanted, and we're going to be a great partner to Mexico now because now they respect us. They didn't even respect us. They couldn't believe how stupid we were with what's going on, where somebody comes in from Mexico and just walks right into our country, and we're powerless to do anything, whereas they have very strong immigration laws. They don't have to take anybody. They can say, out, you get. So we're going to be essentially using, to a large extent, the very powerful immigration laws of Mexico. 
Joining us now, Kenneth Smith-Ramos. He's a former chief NAFTA negotiator for Mexico. He's now an international trade consultant at Mexico City-based Argonne and joins us now live. Kenneth, fantastic to have you on the show. What do you make of what the president was saying there? Do you agree that without the threat of tariffs on Mexico, a deal to tackle immigration would perhaps never have been reached? Well, thank you very much, Julia. I believe it's a positive outcome that the tariffs will not be imposed. I mean, I think that uh, without a doubt, an immigration deal has been worked on in the past. There's been a lot of cooperation activities between Mexico and the U.S. And it is unfortunate that the U.S. chose to really take hostage the NAFTA and the USMCA and put in danger its ratification. There's a lot of cooperation activities that have been going on between Mexico and the U.S., not just in this administration, but in previous administrations. And blaming Mexico for a regional immigration program Program, uh, problem is completely unfair. It's something that is unjustified and that I, while I am glad that we were able to avoid the threat of tariffs, which would have been illegal in any event, it is unfortunate that uh, the USMCA has been put under threat as it was. We'll tackle both of those issues, but do you think, knowing what you do of Mexico, that having 6,000 troops from the National Guard at the border will solve some of the flow of migrant issues that the United States is complaining about. Is this deal a solution to a problem here? Well, in reality, this is a very complex problem. It involves not only policing the border, but also the, uh, the uh, cooperation that exists between Central American countries, Mexico and the United States. The real solution in the long term is to be able to ensure that Central American countries can have economic development, which is the answer to avoiding immigration in the long term. Mexico has been cooperating, has been ensuring, with, along with the United States, the treatment of the migrants at the border, both in the southern border and the northern border of Mexico. So I think the answer in the long term is cooperation. Mexico is definitely advancing in that direction. And there is no reason, at the end of the day, to threaten a major economic pact between Mexico, the U.S. and Canada in order to advance on an issue where there's already a lot of cooperation going on between Mexico and the United States. You made the point that as a result the USMCA or the NAFTA Mark II deal was held hostage. Do you think now that we've seen an agreement reached that that will facilitate the ability for all three nations to pass this deal and, and see USMCA actually put into practice now? Well, hopefully we'll be able to move in that direction. I think that this removes a major obstacle, not just in Mexico, but also in the United States, where the U.S. private sector and the U.S. Congress had voiced its opposition to these types of tariffs being introduced because they would have had a terrible economic impact in the U.S. as well. So it does clear the way for a discussion on ratification on NAFTA and the USMCA on all three countries. But at the same time, we still have uh, trade irritants that exist between Mexico and the U.S. that need to be resolved to clear the way for a full uh, ratification of the uh, uh, USMCA. Talking specifically about the tomato dispute between Mexico and the U.S. that is threatening the exports of $2 billion worth of tomato exports to the United States. So there are still some issues pending. Plus, the Democratic Party in the House of Representatives is negotiating in a tough fashion with the White House, and they are still calling for changes to the text of the USMCA. MCA. So it's, uh, the way is cleared by not having the tariffs, but it definitely there's still a lot of work remaining. Yeah, it's not without its complications. You, to your point earlier, the president said that Mexico now respects the United States. And
And he will look at this and believe that the tariffs brought the Mexicans to the table, allowed a deal to be reached here, and he's threatened that the tariffs could still happen if Mexico doesn't follow through. Is that threat credible, do you think, enough to make the Mexicans take action on immigration? And does Mexico now respect the United States as a result? Look, it's very important to point out that the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. for decades has been based on respect. That's why we were able to negotiate the NAFTA originally. We have the strongest trade relationship of any country in the world with the United States, along with Canada. So this is not a question of, uh, of uh, respect between our countries. Respect exists. I think it will continue. We must make sure that we honor our international commitments. And these types of threats are, are not constructive. At the end of the day, the threat of the tariffs uh, was illegal because it was would be violating the U.S. commitments and market access of the NAFTA and before the World Trade Organization as well. So I think we should move away from the issue of threats, the issue of trying to return to a mechanism of tariffs within North America and to favor cooperation. That has been what has worked over the years between Mexico, the U.S. and Canada. We should continue down that path. How optimistic are you that the president will drop his desire to use tariffs to threaten nations? Well, hopefully that will be the case, but I will tell you that what we have seen so far from the U.S. administration is the use of, for example, national security measures that are nothing but, uh, you know, underground sort of safeguard mechanisms that are used to uh, prevent countries from exporting into the U.S. and bringing them to the negotiating table. Hopefully that modus operandi will change and we will be able to have a relationship based on the focus of the future of ratifying the USMCA and guaranteeing that that will be the path forward. Yeah, I'm not sure you answered the question there, but I don't blame you. <laughs> Kenneth Smith-Ramos, former chief national negotiator for Mexico, says thank you so much for joining us on First Move. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but coming up, the chief executive who says companies need to be front and center of the student debt crisis solution. Stay with us. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief. American Airlines says it's keeping its Boeing 737 MAX grounded until September 3rd. The airline says the extension will meet the cancellation of 115 flights per day. American is the second largest U.S. carrier operating the Boeing aircraft. Boeing 737 MAX fleet was grounded back in March after two crashes killed 346 people. Get ready gamers, Microsoft has unveiled a new Xbox console codenamed Project Scarlet. The new Xbox will debut at the end of next year. Microsoft says it's four times as powerful as the Xbox One S. It comes with more memory, higher resolution and better graphics. But oh boy, you have to wait for it. That's a long time. Shares in tour operator, meanwhile, Thomas Cook are up over 16%, as you can see, after it said Chinese company Fosun may take it over. Last month, the British firm issued its third profit warning in less than a year. Fosun, which owns French rival Club Med, is already Thomas Cook's largest shareholder. All right, you might have heard the statistic. 45 million Americans have student debt, amounting to around $1.5 trillion. The education company Check says companies have no choice but to start tackling the problem. The firm's chief executive told me how he's helping employees to pay down their student loans.
The numbers are extraordinary and they're not good. I mean, there are 318 million Americans and 44 million of them still have student debt. It's $1.5 trillion, which is more than credit card debt. 40% of students aren't able to pay it. And it's the only debt that you can take in this country you can't declare bankruptcy on. So what we're doing is we're taking the youngest, most vulnerable people, giving them extraordinary debt, hoping they get an education, then hoping that they can pay that off. And it's just not working. In fact, 50% of the of high school students go on to college. But out of that 50%, 43% don't even graduate. So they're leaving school wow. with no degree and debt. So we wanted to find a way to make something replicatable, scalable, sustainable, uh, that other companies might be able to uh, uh, copy and see if we could make an impact. Explain how it works. So it's a little bit unique. Um, we had, for seven years, we've already had a program in place that's similar to a 401k, which is instead of putting your money in your 401k and the company matches, we were amongst the first to say, if you put $1,000 in, we'll match that $1,000 just for student debt. But the student debt just kept climbing and climbing and climbing. And so in this case, uh, with the help of the board and my executive team, we put together an equity pool, which allows employees who don't usually get access to equity and our lowest paid employees a chance to benefit from the value they're creating in the company. That pool is uniquely and exclusively dedicated to paying off the student debt of our employees. So over 20% of our employees we know for sure have student debt. It's millions of dollars. And we take the lowest paid employees and we give them $5,000 a year, convert that equity into cash, and then pay their debt directly. And then uh, the group that's a little bit higher gets $3,000 a year. As long as you stay at Chegg, we will continue to pay it until your debt is completely gone. We wanted it not to be a one-year thing. We wanted it to be something that other companies could mirror or adjust to their own. The student debt crisis is a hot political issue ahead of 2020 presidential elections here in the U.S. I asked the CEO what the government is saying to his company about the problem. We're speaking with people in Congress. We're speaking with the policy people on a number of the campaigns. We've spoken to some candidates. Everybody's intrigued by it. Um, they want, you know, they're always a little cautious, so they want to understand more. So we've got the extremes, which is help nobody or pay for everything. <laughs> what we're saying is the crisis exists today, and there's actually something we can do about it. So yeah. if you take a look at the tax plan that we did, imagine the economic stimulus if we would have made things like this tax deductible, and companies would have paid it, and then students, young people, would have been have, have more money in their pocket, right? So it's a substantial raise for America's youngest, brightest people who worked their butts off to get through and get a degree, or at least attempted to get a degree, and they would have bought houses, and they would have bought cars, and clothing, and food, it and investing in their neighborhood. Effect. It has an enormous multiplier effect, as opposed to just putting it on companies' balance sheets, allow us to use it in a productive, constructive way that grows the economy. And less than 10% of companies right now Correct. in the United States are doing anything to try and support their workers with this debt situation. Yeah, most companies are focused, as you can imagine, they should and would be on health care, right, which is also another crisis in this country. So you offer health care, the price of health care goes up every year. But we look for a way that was unique and innovative. We said, well, you can take this, use your equity pools if you're public. But if you have huge cash like Apple or Google, you can also use your cash pools. There's, there's multiple ways that you can do this, but why not invest in those that invested to come work for you and create value is our perspective. And we're hoping conversations like this start a dialogue. Billionaire investor Robert Smith recently hit the headlines promising to pay off the student 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.